Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today's boy of summer is John Rock, who we could call the father of the birth control pill. Or maybe like co-father of yeah. the birth control pill. He's like he's co-parenting the pill. Yes. Yes. Uh, but before we get into who John Rock is, because, y'all, he has a pretty fascinating bio. He does. Uh, let's start out with a question mm-hmm. about the pill. And it was something that I hadn't really thought too much about before studying up on John Rock. And the question is, why do women on the pill still get a period, which is called withdrawal bleeding? Hmm. Yeah, I wondered this too. And uh, over at Go Ask Alice from Columbia, uh, they talk about how it was sort of designed as a way to make the pill more acceptable back in the mid 20th century. Because honestly, having a period on the pill serves absolutely no purpose. Yeah, there is zero biological purpose to having a period. But the developers of the first birth control pill, Enovid, John Rock and George Pincus, specifically designed the pill to mimic a woman's 28-day menstrual cycle in the hopes of making it more palatable, not just for the American public, but specifically to the Catholic Church. And the whole Catholic element of this is one of the most fascinating aspects of John Rock's legacy, because not only was he a gynecologist and co-developer of the birth control pill, but he was also a devout Catholic. Um, a lot of bios of him talk about how he had a crucifix that hung over his desk. He went to mass every Monday um, and he became essentially the face of the, you know, a Catholic's argument on in favor of birth control. And to just give you an idea as we get into information about him, how important he was to the development of this pill and the push to make it accepted um, in the biography The Fertility Doctor, John Rock and the Reproductive Revolution by Margaret Marsh and Wanda Ronner. They write, knowingly or not, Rock subverted conventional sexual attitudes in the name of perpetuating conventional family values. Yeah, because Rock wasn't any kind of political radical. Right. He wasn't revolutionary, and he definitely thought that the fight surrounding the birth control pill was getting to be too feminist. But he was so instrumental in getting birth control pills on the market because his partner, Gregory Pincus, was the biochemist who did a lot of the scientific legwork. He really figured out that it was going to be progesterone to be the key hormone uh, that could block ovulation. But Rock was so important to the process because it was Rock's name and his reputation that, quote, gave ultimate validity to the claims that the pill would protect women against unwanted pregnancy. And that's coming from a 1982 biography of Rock by Loretta McLaughlin. So with that groundwork established, let's find out more about who John Rock really was. Yeah, and a big part of why he is such a fascinating figure. I mean, yes, he played a large part in getting the birth control pill on the market. You know, yes, he advocated for healthy women, healthy birth, healthy families, But what's so fascinating is the evolution is to watch him from the 1920s all the way to the 1950s and beyond start to change his idea of what was important 
about the birth control pill or about contraceptives in general, really. So starting out in 1926, John Rock starts as director of the infertility clinic at the Free Hospital for Women in Boston. So right off the bat, you're like... Wait, infertility. Right. Right. He's treating women to help them actually be able to have more children. And in 1931, you're thinking, okay, well, now maybe he's starting to get radical. Well, just hold on. In 1931, he signed a petition with 15 other prominent Boston physicians urging the repeal of the Massachusetts law prohibiting the sale of contraceptives. Now, he was the only and the first Catholic to do so. And this was a big deal because... Oral contraceptives and the Catholic Church do not get along. Right. And at this time, the time that he signed the petition, he really only accepted the use of contraception for valid health and medical reasons, not as a tool for women's autonomy. Although, as we'll see, his views would evolve as the years went on. Now, even though the Catholic Church has never really been on board with oral contraceptives, they have been on board officially with using the rhythm method as a form of, quote-unquote, natural birth control. And if you want more information on what the rhythm method is, we've done an entire podcast about it. But in 1936, Rock opened up the rhythm clinic at that free hospital for women in Boston, which became the state's first free clinic for providing contraceptive advice. So as we move into the late 30s, early 40s, uh, Rock is really earning his reputation as a giant in the research field uh, in gynecology. And in 1944, he and his colleague Miriam Minkin make headlines for the first successful in vitro fertilization of a human ovum. And at the end of the 1940s, so moving forward a little more, um, he's already at this time considered to be the most prominent infertility expert of his era. But... In dealing with patients, talking to women who are coming to him, he really sympathized with those women who had too many children and too little money. And the more he saw, the more he really became convinced that every couple should be able to choose the number of children that they wanted. And this was a radical idea in Catholicism. Because, I mean, the point is, Rock had really witnessed in his practice a lot of suffering, collapsed wombs, premature aging, but also just the desperation of how do I provide for all of these children? And with his issue of family planning kind of rolling around in his mind, John Rock co-wrote Voluntary Parenthood, which was a guide for the general reader on birth control methods in 1949. And he talks a lot about how overpopulation was threatening world peace and stability. And he became an advocate at that time for population control and in the meantime was backing away from his earlier defense of a large family. And at the same time, he increasingly came to regards sexual expression within marriage as essential to health and happiness. Right. So he's not arguing that a young woman or a a woman before marriage should have access to birth control. Right. He's saying that within marriage, within the confines of marriage, a family should be able to make decisions about how many children they want. And there was a 1973 article that I found on Rock that interviewed his daughter, and she was talking about how she would get into arguments with him because he initially did not want to prescribe birth control, even to newly married couples. So mm. there's still some, you know, he, he's he's definitely not a super liberal guy. But speaking of super liberal people... Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood, in 1951 enters 
the picture where she approaches birth control pioneer Gregory Pincus, who was an agricultural scientist turned biochemist with a small grant because she wanted him to start hormonal contraceptive research. So this very same year that Margaret Sanger and Gregory Pincus kind of team up, Pope Pius Twelfth says that the rhythm method is an okay method of family planning for Catholics. So moving forward to 1952, uh, Pincus brings John Rock into the fold. And the thing is, they'd admired each other's work from afar for years. And Pincus's work on animals and animal studies had actually inspired some of Rock's earlier studies on fertilizing eggs in his own lab. And so to dodge the state's anti-birth control laws that we mentioned earlier, Pincus and Rock tout their human trials as a fertility study, not as birth control. Yeah, this is going on in Massachusetts. And at the time, Massachusetts had some of the harshest laws against birth control and uh, publicizing anything about birth control. So they had to do a little bit of finagling. So based on the information they get from these human trials and more development that goes on, uh, in 1956, John Rock and Gregory Pincus finally settle on the drug maker Searle's Enovid progesterone formulation. So Enovid becomes the first brand of oral contraceptive that the FDA approves for women in the United States. But the thing is, though, before while it's going through the FDA trials, again, due to anti-birth control laws, they had to conduct their human trials on Enovid in Puerto Rico. And some critics have complained that the participants in Puerto Rico didn't provide informed consent with their signatures but that was not standard operating procedure at the time. And also, um, you know, they point out that the women were informed of what can happen. And, and there, I don't think that there were a lot of uh, negative side effects that were going on. And they had to do that because they legally couldn't do it within the continental United States. So in 1957, the FDA greenlights the use of Enovid, but not as a contraceptive. Right. It was for menstrual disorders, and the medicine actually had to carry a warning that it suppressed ovulation. And so mysteriously, from 1957 to about 1959, a lot of women suddenly began to develop mysterious menstrual disorders. And by 1960, the FDA finally okays Enovid's contraceptive claims. But meanwhile, though, for John Rock, this wasn't the end of the battle. Sure, they, you know, developed Enovid and they got the FDA approval and everything. But for him, the battle was still with the Catholic Church. The Pope had okayed the rhythm method, but they were waiting for a papal verdict on oral contraception because he truly believed that the pill could solve birth control problems for Catholics. And he wasn't looking for a revolution in sexual behavior at all. He was still like a very uh, morally inclined kind of guy. But uh, so so he, he wanted to take things a step further. So in 1961, the drug maker gets the green light finally to market Enovid as an oral contraceptive. And this spurs other drug makers to immediately get to work on their own versions of oral contraceptives. So in 1963, going back to John Rock, he, you know, is doing 
the best that he can, he's putting all of his effort into convincing the church that birth control contraceptives are the way to go as far as family planning is concerned. And he publishes his book, The Time Has Come, in which he makes the argument that the pill is a way more precise method of following the rhythm method. It's natural. It has all of the same hormones already present in a woman's reproductive system. It simply extends that safe period where you will not get pregnant. Well, will not, you know, it's not 100%. Right. But the chances of getting pregnant are much lower. But that's the exact reason, though, why that argument that, hey, look, Catholic Church, like everything is totally natural. It's totally fine. That's the exact reason why from the get go, he and Pincus designed the pill to mimic that 28 day menstrual cycle. And as a result of coming out as a Catholic doctor in favor of birth control, having developed this birth control pill, of course, he caught a ton of flack from some people in the Catholic community. For instance, Boston's archdiocese and paper, The Pilot, warned Rock to, quote, watch his step or else. Mm. Not only that, Monsignor Francis W. Carney later called him a, quote unquote, moral rapist. Yikes. And there was even an anecdote in that 1973 newspaper article that I found about how two of Rock's kids were getting a ride home from uh, like a Catholic church member or something like they, they had like common friends. And once the parent found out whose kids they were, they stopped the car and told the kids to get out. Whoa. Yeah. It was serious. Yeah. But, I mean, there were Catholics who agreed with him. Unfortunately, they were in the minority. Uh, in 1964, Father Louis Janssens, who was the professor of moral theology at the University of Louvain, credited Rock's book with providing a way for the Catholic Church to change its birth control policy. Like, here's a way to help Catholic families do the best they can. Right. But obviously, all of the effort that John Rock put into kind of trying to pave the way for the Vatican to okay oral contraceptive was not enough because in 1968, Pope Paul IV said nope to the pill. Yeah, rhythm method or nothing. But stateside, on a more positive note for birth control, in 1972, the Supreme Court ruling in Eisenstadt versus Bard struck down the law prohibiting birth control sales to unmarried women because even though the FDA greenlit Enovid in 1957. It wasn't until the 70s that doctors could prescribe it to unmarried women. Well, so we mentioned Rock's evolution, his evolution of thought and how he certainly was no feminist uh, throughout the whole of his career. And he didn't promote the birth control pill as a way to liberate women. And some of his early thoughts on the subject are a little touchy. For instance, he said that nature intended motherhood to be a woman's career and anything which diverts her from her prime purpose is socially wrong. But the thing is, the partnership between him and Margaret Sanger during the development of the birth control pill, because that research was funded via Sanger and the donor Catherine McCormick, uh, who funded really a, a lot of their research, um, was also a, a relationship that evolved as well to where they started out kind of on opposite sides of the table. And then as John Rock moved in a little bit more toward the center, Sanger realized that, oh, you know what? This guy 
is totally fine. His Catholicism is not actually hindering his, you know, medical research into the birth control. And actually, because he is almost so conflicted about it, there is a sincerity, I think, that came along with it that made him such a prime spokesman for birth control. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And he Rock also impressed Sanger with a 1954 speech in which he called for massive increases for funding for research on reproduction and to discover new contraceptives to uh, stem population growth. And he actually had a quote about, you know, if just like a tenth of the funding that went towards developing a nuclear weapon went towards reproduction and contraceptives, then we would have a great aid in preventing overpopulation in this world. And over at New York University, they have the Margaret Sanger Papers Project. And in one of the articles about the relationship between Sanger and John Rock and Pincus, they talked about how uh, Sanger really grew to like Rock on a personal level because apparently Gregory Pincus, the biochemist, was a little bit more of a, a loose cannon, a little bit more radical, a little bit pushier with the birth control agenda, whereas John Rock was just a bit more of a smooth operator and apparently incredibly handsome. At one point, she wrote to Martha Bard Rockefeller that Rock was, quote, as handsome as a god. Mm. Like easy, Margaret Sanger. And by 1960, the Papers Project talks about how she viewed John Rock's faith actually as an asset and that he was a skillful negotiator with drug companies and that he had so much influence within the medical profession that it helped raise the profile of oral contraceptives and Enovid, that first approved birth control pill. Right. I think having somebody as, you know, solid and steady and respected as John Rock promoting the birth control pill, despite his faith, despite his background and upbringing, I think it gave it a lot of uh, a lot of support. Well, and they also had to have a clinical doctor like Rock in the birth control research in order to conduct any kind of human trial, because that was a requirement from the FDA. George Pincus, as more of a lab scientist, would not be able to, on his own, conduct any sort of human trial. So, I mean, Rock was really kind of the center of of all of it. Mm -hmm. And in 1984, he passed away and left behind this, you know, obviously like a huge, but still I feel like it's such a conflicted legacy. Right. Well, by the end of his life, he was just so over it. Not yeah. to sound flip, but in his last interview, you know, he was like, they asked him what the, the best part of his life was. And he said, right now, because he lived in this little, you know, forest cabin in New Hampshire. And he said, you know, I get to I get to experience peace and quiet every day. Right. And, you know, they asked him about his faith. And he was basically like, you know, yeah, that's something I believed when I was younger. What? Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, with the kind of pinnacle at the pinnacle of your career simultaneously being called a moral rapist, because that that phrase, the moral rapist, is something that was cited over and over again. It was a mm-hmm. soundbite that continued was like, oh, <laughs> it's still in the kind of, you know, news cycles that we have today. But, you know, with that label being affixed to you as well, I can imagine that maybe maybe birth control was a chapter that. He, Rock wanted firmly in the past. Yeah, could be. But in, you know, in helping it 
evolve and enter the market, I mean, he's he changed the world. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly changed women's lives. So that's our Boys of Summer for this week. Uh, if anyone would like to write in to us, as usual, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also hit us up on Facebook or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And we've got a couple of letters to read, which we'll get to right after a quick break. And now back to our letters. Well, I've got one here from Shauna, and she is a PhD student and wrote into us in response to our episode on whether female politicians are better for women. And she writes, I'm working on my doctorate in political science, and I loved this episode on female politicians as it completely sums up my research agenda. I'd actually been planning to request this topic, so thanks for reading my mind and giving me an easy 30-minute overview of what I studied to share with my mom. I thought you did a great job of discussing the impact of female politicians around the world, and not just those in the United States. I'm currently focusing on an under-researched aspect of this topic, which is, do female citizens participate more in politics when there is a greater percentage of female politicians in the legislature? So far, I've found that the presence of female politicians does not increase female political participation. Hopefully in the next few years, I'll be able to explain this phenomena, and maybe it will make a good addition to an update on female politicians. Thanks so much for your awesome podcast. And thanks for your awesome Awesome research and insight. It's an interesting uh, correlation, and I am curious to find out what she digs up on that relationship. Yeah, so keep us posted. This letter's from Hannah. She says, I just listened to the Child Caretakers podcast from last fall, and I had the thought that it might be interesting to do a podcast on disability and parenting or on the effects on children of disabled parents. I've never been a child caretaker, but my mother is legally blind, which has led to other types of responsibilities being put on me growing up to help her compensate for her impaired vision. I never knew any other kids with disabled parents, so I never really thought about myself as part of a demographic growing up, but I'm very interested to know if there is any research on this topic, such as if disabled people are less likely to have kids, if kids of disabled parents tend to have different strengths or issues, and things like that. I have no idea if this has been a topic of interest to researchers or if support systems even exist. As I said, I never access them, but I think it could be a great topic to explore. So thank you for the suggestion, Hannah, and thank you for sharing your story. And thanks to everybody who's written in to momstuffdiscovery.com. Don't forget to head over to Facebook's. Check us out over there and like us while you're at it. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And don't forget to watch us as well. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we come out with a new show on YouTube. So head over to YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou and subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 